You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season six, episode 14. Tanasha LeRae is a poet, actress, and filmmaker who has an intense passion to see nations transformed through storytelling. As a spoken word artist, she incorporates her theatrical world of acting to elevate poetry from the page to an encounter. From working with inner city kids, to young women, to budding creatives, she loves empowering individuals to move in their God-given voice, purpose, and power. Tanasha also desires to see the wound of racism healed in the United States and uses her creativity and teachings to equip this generation to walk out healing, justice, and unity. She currently serves as a pastor in creative arts at Bethel Church in Reading. In today's episode, I talk with Tanasha about her work as a poet and actress standing at the intersections of spiritual encounter and social justice. We also talk about her film, Hope Song, which explores the historical experience of black people in America and paints a poetic and prophetic vision for racial healing. You can find a link to watch Hope Song in the show notes of this episode and on makersandmystics.com. And lastly, before we dive into our conversation, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast, left a review on iTunes, or shared about us on social media. Your help in spreading the word enables us to bring these conversations to a much wider audience. So thank you for listening. And a very special thanks goes out to our monthly patrons who make the productions of these episodes possible. This is my interview with poet and actress Tanasha LeRae. Tanasha, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I'm really excited to get to know you and have this conversation with you today. Oh, goodness. Happy to be here with you. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to dive right into some of your background as a poet and as an actress. Tell me some about where you began as a poet. Did you did you start acting first or did you begin as a poet first? Or how do these things work in your life? Oh, my gosh. That's going back to childhood right there. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny when I was young, since I was in second grade, I actually wanted to be a dentist and I held pretty tightly to that dream up until my late teens. But when I was younger, I used to write poetry just for fun. I think one of my elementary school teachers kind of opened that up in me, uh, with just a class assignment. And then she surprised us all by getting all of our poetry bound in a book. And, uh, so I have this like third grade book of poems. And when I was in middle school, a couple of friends and I, we used to actually write poetry and pass each other poems in the hallway in a notebook and give each other feedback. And um, it's funny because you can't pay me to do that now <laughs> with, <laughs> with all the scheduling and everything. But that kind of shaped me and finding that people's stories could actually be put into heightened language. Because some of my friends, the things they told about the the stories, the secrets that they shared in their poetry, the vulnerability. I remember it really affecting me. Like, wow, they would have never told me this in a conversation. I don't even know if they would have been able to look me in the eye, but it's in this poem. 
And that stayed with me over the years. And it wasn't until I got to, to college, actually, that I started um, merging poetry even with acting. So, you know, to jump even into faith, because that's really where my acting journey comes from. When I was 17 years old, through a bribe of my drama teacher, who <laughs> she, she bribed me. I wanted to get back into an acting class that I had previously opted out of the previous year because there was a pre-AP calculus class offered at the same time as advanced drama. And I needed to make sure that I stayed on track for my scholarships for the dentistry school. So she was mad at me for doing that, but bribed me to actually get in the class by being in this one act play. So I decided to be in this one act play. Um, it was just a six week process of rehearsals to the actual performance um, that was a competition. And while I'm on stage, I have language for it now, but then I didn't know what the heck was happening to me. Now I would call, I was having an encounter with God. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like everything stopped. My insides started to move very, very quickly at the very last scene in this play. I got chills down my entire body, but I started to sweat. I'm looking out into the audience and it seems like everyone is just frozen. And I have this moment where inside of my head, I'm just thinking, <laughs> they are really waiting for me to tell stories. And I hear this voice uncontrolled by me inside my head say, yes, they are waiting for you to tell stories. Mm. And I freak out because I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> openly thinking I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> losing my mind in front of all of these people. This is what happens when you act and stay a little bit too long in the imagination world. No. <laughs> and, and so I rushed away from that moment, finished the play, beeline it for the corner and bawl my eyes out. Not because of this encounter, but because, I mean, I grew up in the South, black parents, and I just don't know very many black mamas and black daddies that are saying uh, it's okay for you to go out and be a starving artist. They're like, your ancestors paid for you, paved the way for you to be able to vote and for you to be able to work and get a, a decent job. And here I'm saying, uh, I actually want to go and be an actress. And I didn't see it mm -hmm. modeled anywhere. So I cried because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to disown my parents. <laughs> <laughs> not that acting's not an, op uh, an option. No, I, I knew in that moment, I have to act. I have to tell stories. And sh long story short, later, about a year later, when I finally told my parents the full story, they actually prophesied into my life, mm. fully supported it, and sent me on my way to go to Oklahoma City University to study acting. And it was there that I discovered voice. It was also there that I discovered, uh, goodness, a lot of racial tension, um, some discriminatory mm -hmm. acts against me, um, but then also like my own voice in the midst of it. And I, I would say the merge between acting and poetry for me happened when I ran for Miss Black Oklahoma City University. I, I really wanted to represent the Black community well on campus because at that time there hadn't been very many positive experiences of some of our Black leaders. And I needed a talent and I didn't know anything about pageantry, but I knew a lot of things at that point from studying acting about theater and performance and bringing things to life. And so I decided to write a poem and then merge it with acting. Now, I didn't know anything about slam poetry, spoken word poetry, I'd never heard of the art form, but I just wanted to elevate the words on the page, 
that were poetic and heightened language into something that could be felt viscerally, something that could be felt in a tangible form, something that could give people full body chills, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wrote this poem called The Rhythm, and it was about the journey of African-Americans um, in the entertainment industry from singing Negro spirituals in the plantations all the way up to the first Academy Award winner, Hattie McDaniel. And I also, you know, just for kicks and giggles, threw in singing and tap dancing to actually signify the rhythm, the rhythm of, of the oppression, but getting beat down, but we got back up and beat down, but we got up and down and up and down and up and how that's like the rhythm of resilience that's actually beating in my very veins. It's, it's the gift from my ancestors, so to speak. And it was at that point that I realized, oh my goodness, I, this I've got to keep doing. I've got to keep doing this Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, you know, County Cullen type thing, but in a really heightened acting way, taking the heightened language with heightened performance to create encounter poetry. So that's kind of been my journey, at least with the poetry and the acting merge. Uh, when I went to OCU, I also studied acting and finished with a degree, went back to back to get a master's in film production and, and then dived into teaching an inner city drama for uh, kids from seventh to, through 12th grade. And then I made that big leap to Los Angeles um, <laughs> and acted there for a couple of years and, and, and then had a whole host of interesting encounters, some God encounters, some just some of those really weird LA <laughs> moments <laughs> before uh -huh. um, transitioning to Redding, California. You've used the word encounter several times and you use the phrase encounter poetry. And I'd love it if you could tell me more about what you mean by encounter poetry. Yeah. You know, this is this is makers and mystics. Maybe I can go, go a little mystical. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, All the way. Let's do it. Encounter poetry is, a, I would say, a phrase I've just recently landed upon um, as I'm just fighting for better language as God navigates me through life. I believe it's encounter because when I look at you and me, you know, we're spiritual beings, we're spirits. So mm -hmm. even this conversation is an encounter. I'm encountering you. I'm, I'm having mm -hmm. an interaction with you that actually will leave me changed. If for nothing else, it was a conversation I didn't have the day before. So I am changed in that this conversation has been an added conversation in my life. Now, will the content be great? Will it be something that transforms my life? Well, that might be give or take, but I am different because the conversation happened, even if it's by a small margin. That's an encounter to me. Um, if I understand who I am and what I carry and what I can give the world, I love story, I love breakthrough, I love justice, I love love, I, I love honor, I love mercy, I love all those things. What if I wrapped it in a poem and presented it in such a way where when people heard it, they ran right into justice? They smacked right into mercy. They, they literally had a visceral, tangible taste of love. I love the senses that, that God's also given us, the five senses. And any great storyteller finds ways to activate all five of those senses. Now, sometimes it's difficult to activate maybe the taste because you can't actually taste words, but imagery can evoke memories of taste. And all of those things are even pulling on past encounters. If, if I start talking about my big mama's sweet potato pie, that's pulling <laughs> on past encounters with not just her great cooking, but her love. 
and 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 this is where nostalgia comes in and um and i i i think what the world needs more of even when i look at films every movie that's made man it's an encounter every play that's put on its feet is an encounter and and i believe that artists actually have a responsibility to know what encounters they're creating for their audiences um, because they leave them marked with a residue and if they're not careful they'll be marking the world in with dirt <laughs> and marking the world with a tainting that other artists will have to come behind them and clean up i know that a large part of your work involves honoring the history of where you've come from, the people whose stories you're telling. Tell me some about why honoring history in your art is important to you. You know, when I look at history, the key word for me is story. And I just see so much pain brought to the world when people don't get the story right, the actual happenings. And, and then I just look, I, I look in scripture. Scripture informs me that God cares about story. God cares about details. He cares about the actual happenings, the occurrences, the encounters, the encounters with people, the encounters with pain, the encounters with him. So much so that when people had encounters with God, they even named land after the exact encounter they had with God. And that became a part of the story. When I look at the wound of racism in the United States, a lot of it still exists today because we don't have the story right. <laughs> we don't, we're not telling the story. When I was even in high school or actually middle school, eighth grade American history class. I remember in my history book, there were of the, the, the assigned chapters that we were to read over the entire year, there were only two short paragraphs that were assigned to us to read on slavery. Wow. And I'm like, what? whoa, 246 years of slavery, of building the economy, of creating the United States to be a super force in the world. What other country has been has been able to become such a super force, then fight its mother country, then rise back up after a major war to be a super force again, then fight itself, and then within a hundred years raise back up to be another world super force? That most other places after a civil war they're crippled um, in their economy, they're crippled in their socializing, they're crippled in their their world position in the world. And I, I look at story and oftentimes when we begin to even share our own personal stories, I watch people, people's eyes light up and their ears perk up and their belief systems begin to, to fall away as something begins to contradict that thing that they were holding on and clutching on so tightly to because now there's information and a different perspective that they didn't know about. And I got this type of a journey from my parents, my mom and my dad, when I was in middle school and high school, they would take us on vacations, my mom called them. Um, I call them field trips. <laughs> and <laughs> she would take us to, every summer we would leave, get in our van, and for two weeks we would travel to a couple of states in the South, and we would go to plantations, abolitionist homes, markers for Underground Railroad stops, um, uh, president's homes, crazy museums, lynching trees, all of the, these different places so that I could see and imagine history 
right there in front of me. I, I had, I encountered wow. these historical places and it shifted things in me. You know, it, I remember standing under a lynching tree and I'm just, my imagination is going and even thinking about the N-word. And at that time I was a middle school student using the N-word quite often, but now my imagination is going mm. and I'm sensing and, and, and imagining black individuals hanging from this tree and the N-word being the last word they hear before they go mm. to glory. And it snapped me into reality. Oh my gosh, I can't use that word anymore. I, like, because now the story has informed me of something different. The, the story has, has taught my heart something. It's brought me to a place where I'm now responsible for my place in the story. And I, I, I feel that that is a key component into healing racial division in this nation for everyone, for the black community, they know where they came from. That our history did not start in the United States. Our history started as royalty and, and brilliant individuals in Africa. We need to know that story. Mm -hmm. We need to know the story yes. of resiliency, the story of receiving even the true gospel in the midst of white individuals giving us a false gospel. Um, and But we actually met the true Holy Spirit and the miracle signs and wonders that went with that. A lot of individuals need to know the story of all of the oppression and the systems and patterns so that we can actually see the systems and patterns still at play today. But many people don't think it even exists because they don't see yesterday's part and they can't see today's part because they don't even have a, a reference point for where we've come from. And I believe if we honor the story, we can we get permission to write a better chapter and it's even scientifically proven storytelling is the number one way to even help repentance to help change the thinking and if we shared more of our stories and not just from oh here's my story of how i was called an n-word but the story what is the story of the united states as it pertains to black and white relations and 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 put that in the history books for students to actually digest i believe that will be the greatest sign mm -hmm. that this nation has repented when we even teach the children the true story and not the whitewashed, watered down version that keeps the United States appearing to be this incredible super force that can do no wrong, that's gonna save the day. But meanwhile, we have all this pain because we have all of these wounds unaddressed and all of this story untold. Well, I want to ask you a question because, you know, we've been talking about you as a poet and also your work as an actor. Yeah. But one thing I'm really excited to talk about is that I know that recently you've just created a film that brings together your spoken word and then also uh, your performance. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's called Hope Song. And this is an exploration of the Black experience in America for over the last 400 years. I'd love for you to tell us some about this. What is Hope Song all about? Yeah. You know, Hope Song came from, um, goodness, number one, 2019 being the 400-year anniversary since slavery, the first documented slave of the African slavery in the United States started. And for me, 400 is a very profound number because of just what 400 even marks in, in biblical literature. But when I look at our approach oftentimes in the African-American community with social justice today, with justice specifically in the area of race, I often see it devoid of hope. And mm -hmm. someone that I love studying, you know, and, and 
I, I love the greats. I love looking at the Malcolm X's, the Marcus Garvey's, even going back to the W.E.B. Du Bois and George Washington Carver's and all those individuals that they were influential in either creating texture for African-American culture, economy, um, voice, thoughts, all of that. But I get so stuck on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We have this phrase mm -hmm. in the community where we're like, show me the receipts. Show me the receipts. And when I look at Dr. <laughs> King's life, I look at the fruit of his life. I look at the, my goodness, the, the level of impact that he made in the nation in a short time span. If we just counted 1955 to 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed, 1955 when the Montgomery bus boycott started, those nine years, how can you turn the United States of America in the middle of Jim Crow around in nine years? That's mm. mighty powerful. Now, no, he wasn't the only one. There were several other civil rights organizations at that time, but this man was able to mobilize, organize, and I mean, he just has so many receipts for his life. And when I look at the way he carried himself, the key ingredients that I see are the nonviolence, the radical, scandalous love, the mercy that's given with language like, our goal is to befriend the enemy. <laughs> like, mm. wait, what? <laughs> I, I'm still trying yeah. to get there. Do you hear me? I'm still trying to get on that level. <laughs> I'm wrapping my mind around it and asking the Lord to wrap my heart around it because I'm still mad mm -hmm. at people from 12 years ago and, I keep, and he keeps bringing it up in conversation saying, give this to me again. And I'm sitting here looking at Dr. King's journey with people bombing his house and him saying, no, I need to keep a pure heart so that when that enemy finally gets it, that the soil of my heart is pure enough to receive a friend. Just like, goodness gracious. And then the last ingredient that I saw was just the hope. And I believe that hope is connected to the prophetic dream that he had and the prophetic gifting that he operated in and just the prophet that he was. It's what I believe is actually mm -hmm. missing from the, from the conversation on race in the United States right now is the prophetic voice. We all are kind of having a ground conversation about race. We're, we're, having, we're, we're having those ground level, like what, what's happening? Let's get it right. Okay, let's look at all the issues and let's weigh the problems and the potential solutions. Let's get everybody woke. Then let's get everybody allies and everybody advocates. And we want to move from solidarity into action and, you know, the, all of those things. And they're necessary. And there are certain people that are called to it that I pray for. And I'm like, go after it. We have to do it. And to a degree, I'm called to it. But then there's this part where you, you, weariness sets in. And I'm like, what's going to actually pull us out of the weariness? And so I look at even the children of Israel <laughs> in scripture and Moses leading them out of Egypt and them wandering around in the wilderness. And Moses goes up to the mountaintop. Now, they were all supposed to go up to this mountain and worship the Lord. They didn't all follow instructions. They got scared <laughs> for whatever reasons. They just, they just chose the weaker, whacker path. <laughs> But you have Moses go up and he's able from this point to see God's glory, to encounter God's love, to experience God's mystery and to see the promised land. 
And when you come when you come down to the people on the ground level who are going to have to be the ones walking and journeying to the promised land, they're the ones that have to constantly be rallied back to purity, constantly be rallied back to identity, constantly be rallied back to a place of just understanding that God is God because they had not been on the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. But then you experience people like Dr. King and even the night before he was assassinated, he used language like, oh, I, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I've been to the mountain. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The language that he used let, let me realize that he really was a prophet called in our day or called in, in the day prior to us. And that dream that he gave was just a dream I feel that seeped out in the nation. But this was language he was always using along the way. It was the, the strength that he had to actually get up every day and fight white supremacy, systemic oppression, systemic racism in a day where you could be killed for it, like openly killed for it. And I look now and I'm like, we need that hope again. We need that dream again. 1963, we have Dr. King professing that dream. And he professes this dream, you know, about his four little girls, about being judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin, all of those beautiful things. And then two years later, you have Selma, Bloody Sunday. 1965, them marching in Selma, Alabama to just for basic rights as citizens. And they are beaten openly on television and it's, it's publicized as Bloody Sunday. And I'm like looking at that gap going, what allowed them to get the gusto, to get the passion, to get the wherewithal, to actually put their bodies on the line for voting? knowing that this police chief in this city was the worst police chief and had receipts for so much damage to the black community and violence. And I just go, man, it's that prophetic dream. <laughs> it's that hope. It's that picture of what the future is to be. And right now, when I, when I, when I, in this piece, the 400 year old hope song, it's, it's the, it's the song that my ancestors never got to sing, but it's the song we can sing. Now we have a choice. We can, we can sing the song of our, our forefathers. We can sing Dr. King's song, or we can sing our own song. And it's the song that our ancestors never got to sing. It's the song of the dream actually coming to fruition. And it's the hope we need in our bones to actually do what we're supposed to do today. And, and I believe that as we step into that, we're, we will be inspired and get even the creative downloads as to what our piece is to contribute. And we got the cloud of witnesses cheering us on and they've passed us the baton, but their work is not our work. We have a work of our own. And, and so 400 year old hope song is really meant to inspire our generation to pick up hope as we do this work. I want to ask you one last question, and this is something that I'm really curious to know about. It's something that fascinates me about you as an artist and just about this prophetic creative journey that you're on. But I know that you are a creative arts pastor at Bethel out in Reading. And I also know that from our conversation that activism and social justice is a really large part of what motivates you as an artist. 
But what's fascinating to me is that a lot of times, more of the charismatic side of the faith spectrum is almost seen in polarity with more activism and social justice sides of the faith, if that makes sense. But I love that in your life, you have built bridges between more experiential Christianity and social activism. Tell me some about how that all plays out in your own life, your own spiritual life, your own creative life. <laughs> so that is the question of the uh, yeah of my season. That's that's you know these go all the way to the ponderings because I, I I have to, I often step back and I look at things because I I get so engrossed in my work and in in pastoring individuals and anything I just try to put my hands to I just try to give it one hundred percent and then I come up for air and I'm like whoa this is really interesting uh, do we believe that. <laughs> Uh, wait, why are we silent about this? Wait a minute, hold up. I thought this was mm. clear. Didn't we say Holy Spirit leads and guides us into all truth? You know, so I have I have these moments. Um, mm. And the thing that gets me through the tension of it all is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It is the person of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I really even have to attribute a lot of it to my parents because the way they raised me to be so conscious of what God is doing and conscious of truth to story. I, I just realized if we, if we stay in those places with a pure heart and with a place of honor and also having to navigate a fence, oof, my, 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 my. <laughs> then we can actually get somewhere as a people. And, and what I have to do as well is, is in charismatic circles, um, you start to run into just basic evangelical framework at some point. And sometimes that hasn't always been, when I look at just the story of Blacks in America, that has not always been to our benefit. Um, Like when you say white evangelicals in the hood, in, in the South where I grew up, people roll their eyes. And then I find myself right now to be in a space where that's primarily who I'm around. But when I look at the journey, I go, I'm moving with the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's, I have to kind of just shed the, the need to be accepted by society, shed the need to, um, to people please. <laughs> you know, there are certain people mm-hmm. in the black community that look at me and they, they call me a sellout. Um, and then there are certain people in the white community that look at me and they call me angry and I, I need to, go, you know, go have a sozo or something. And, and I'm, in the, I'm <laughs> in the midst of both these places and I'm just going, okay, Jesus would sit with these sinners and would not care about what that group over there thought about his reputation. And so there are times where I'm straddling. And I'm just like, this is just what it has to be. Um, and, and, and I recognize at the end of the day, everybody has basic needs when it comes to this conversation. And the Lord has filled me with so much compassion for everyone, the needs of the black community to actually feel safe, to to understand that their story is their story and their pain is their pain and we get to grieve it. We get to grieve it in the way that we want to grieve it and we get to invite the Lord into that grieving process. And there's needs for pastoral insight along that way to grab hands and to help people through it and to not judge them for their anger. But then I'm also on the other side of things in predominantly white communities, charismatic communities where they've been so 
in the Holy Ghost parties, <laughs> they didn't realize what God was doing in culture. And then they came up for air mm-hmm. and, and, and caught a surprise. Hello, God's doing something in our mm-hmm. time and you need to be a part of it. And, and so, but there's a need there. Do I shame them and judge them because they were off having the Holy Ghost party? Or do I love them and be a rabbi the same way Jesus loved his disciples and said, hey, like y'all getting on my nerves, but this is how you actually cast out that demon. Hey, how long <laughs> must I be among you? But I'm going to invite you one more time to come pray with me, even though I know you're going to fall asleep. Like it, it's, it's that tension in the midst of it because people are people. And if I have my love turned on and it's not, and my love is not contingent upon what you do or do not do, what you say or do not say, I really feel we can go the distance. And I'm again, wrapping myself in the principles of nonviolence as, as Dr. King outlined in, in the fifties and sixties, these six principles of nonviolence. And I, I start to really realize there are no enemies here that are in flesh and blood. The only, the only thing we should be fighting is evil, not each other. And that always sends yes. me back to the drawing board to find out what does it look like to fight evil today? And that looks like long suffering sometimes. That looks like God saying, I actually want you to create a document to teach this group of people. And I'm like, but God, I'm tired of being the teacher. <laughs> he goes, oh, 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 you tired today. Okay, well then come unto me, all you heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It, it, it doesn't look like what culture is saying, hashtag self-care all the time. It looks like hashtag Holy Spirit care. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's a, just a, it's a mindset that I'm, I'm having to adopt and having to help others see because it's what God is calling us to do. And if we're to be effective with kingdom activism and not finding ourselves conforming to culture's activism, where we actually, by the end of our lives, we have some real receipts, like Dr. King had real receipts. And there's a way that we have to walk that is clean hands and pure hearts that we can ascend the hill of the Lord with this thing in our hands that I can reconcile this part to the Father. He wants racial division reconciled back to him. He wants the unity. So if I'm to do that, I have to have clean hands and a pure heart, which means I got to build bridges in the black community, in the hood where I was raised, in the white charismatic communities and fundamentalist communities. It it doesn't matter. Wherever God leads me, got to build the bridges. And that just looks like finding out the needs of the people, growing in compassion in my heart for them, holding true to what the story is and opening eyes to see the truth of the story and then inviting people to be a part of writing the new one, the new chapter of the story. Tanasha, thank you so much for spending this time with us on Makers and Mystics. I'm a new fan of yours. I really love the work you're doing. It's important and I'm behind you all the way. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh goodness, thank you so much for having me and for (laughs) creating such a thing so that you can keep us sharp in both worlds. And thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you're a patron, you can head over to patreon.com slash makers and mystics and hear an additional interview segment with Tanasha on the responsibility of the artist. And don't forget, tickets to the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering taking place March 20th through 22nd in Winston-Salem, North Carolina are currently on sale until they sell out. Ticket links to the Breath in the Clay are in the show notes of this episode and also on makersandmystics.com. Music for this episode was provided by Alton Eugene, Young Karts, and Vincent Augustus. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>